I was blessed by the songs this morning. Um, every now and then, sometimes too often, uh, when I, I get in my mind what the Lord wants me to share from the text, I wrestle with it because there's something else in my heart that I want to, 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 to share. And uh, well, last night I was um, still working on the sermon and trying to put it together the way I, I wanted it. Not saying that it's the way I wanted it, but the songs just really encourage me when we're singing words like, never going to let us down. He is never going to let us down. It is a hard thing for us to sometimes grasp when we're in the middle of a storm, when we're in the middle of a trial, when our circumstances, the situation around us, it's easy to get our eyes off of Jesus and onto whatever's taking place, and we forget that he's promised he's never, never going to let us down. And we sang a God of miracles. You know, the, the title of my message this morning is In Need of a Touch from God. God is a God of miracles. Miracles for him are not abnormal. They're the norm. You know, the natural is what we live in. He's a supernatural God. You know, we look at him in miracles and we're going, oh my, oh wow. And we need to realize that's God. That's what he does. That's who he is. And he's always there, ready to touch us and provide what we need when we need it, according to his time schedule. You know, we, we live in a world where we're controlled by time. God is the one that controls time. So, you know, we, we need to stay focused on him, even though our schedule seems to be different than his. He's a God of miracles. And then the last one with a fresh outpouring. What we need is a fresh outpouring. I don't exactly know what that is, a fresh outpouring. I sometimes think what we need is just a, is, as some of a, my friends like to say, we all need a back to Jesus moment every day where we just, again, come and humble ourselves before him, offer ourselves up to him out of thanksgiving and praise, and a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, receiving what he has for us. You know, touched by God. Sometimes you hear people say that, oh, God touched me, and some of us would go, I wonder what that means. What did it feel like? Did he touch you on the top of the head or tap you on the back? What does it mean? If we say it around non-Christians, they're going to look at you and go, are you nuts or what? Touched by God. What is it? Well, we'll look at a touch of God, but one thing I know for sure from Scripture, the touch of God brings life. To whatever the situation is, whatever is going on, it brings life. He is the God of life. He is the giver of life. He's the giver of every good thing and a touch from God. You know, most of us have experienced times, probably all of us, where we've been in situations where we feel hopeless. We don't see the way out. We don't see the way through. We don't see how things can change. We fall into despair at other times. We feel overwhelmed, discouraged. Who amongst us hasn't felt discouraged? And grief, goodness, Things happen in this life, and we can be overwhelmed with grief. 
and not that it's a bad thing, but we can't live in grief forever. Sometimes it's indecision. Sometimes it's fear. All of these things, a simple touch from God can bring hope where there's hopelessness. It can bring encouragement. It can comfort us. It can console us. It can give us direction when we're seeking direction in our lives. It can bring a refreshing when we feel just plain wore out. A touch from God. It can bring spiritual life to where something seems to have been spiritually dead in our lives. I know sometimes I feel this way, and I'm hoping I'm not the only one, but, you know, sometimes it's like, Lord, use me. Lord, there's a gift there. I don't know what to do with it. God, I use the gift, and nothing happens. And it becomes discouraging, even in our spiritual walks sometimes, that it seems like it's, it's whatever was there, it's just dry. If it's not dead, it's at least really dry. And a touch from God can revive that. Whether it's ministry, relationships, we often run into ministry issues, relational issues, marriages. Oh, the enemy hates marriage. Marriages are under attack, and we can enter into all of those negative things. But a simple touch from God as we respond. Children and parents, friends, relationships, all these things. How does the Holy Spirit touch us? What does that mean? You know, I, I'm one of those guys who likes, I, I, like to, I like to put bones on things like that and say, okay, a touch from God, good. How does God touch me? How does he touch any of us? Well, I believe there's a number of ways he can touch us. I do believe he can physically touch us if he so chooses. I'm not sure that's the most common. But he will touch us by his word. We're reading the word, and all of a sudden, there's a revelation. And all of a sudden, whatever was in us and weighing us down is lifted. It's a touch of God. He can touch us as our times of prayer, or we're meditating on the word, we're driving down the road, whatever it is, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. We can be touched by that small, still voice of the Holy Spirit, that whisper of God in our lives. He can touch us through dreams, through visions. There's so many ways that he can reach down and touch each other, one of us. I'm going to share a text, and um, hopefully it'll make sense by the time we're done. But I want to give a little background to the text. It's actually going to be in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus' ministry has just been picking up steam. His fame is starting to spread. He's been doing crazy things. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been doing all these things. He's taught what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the people are just amazed at this man's teaching. Who is this guy? The carpenter's son from Nazareth. He's, he's giving teaching with authority that's just penetrating the hearts of the people. People are being drawn to him. He's on this amazing role like they've never seen before. And, of course, as he's doing all this, the religious people are getting irritated. They're already trying to figure out how to slow him down and all that he is doing. He he's came down from the Sermon on the Mount, and he went to Capernaum. You maybe remember the story. He went there, and they went to Peter's house, and, and he had to heal Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick with fever. He healed her. And then it says, 
people from all around came. And it says he was casting out devils with a word and healing all that were brought to him. And it says that was to fulfill the prophecy of what the Messiah was going to do way back in Isaiah. So Jesus' fame is growing. He's just recently in Capernaum, because he's been doing all these miracles, a centurion, a centurion who was very kind to the Jewish people. That wasn't always or normally the case. But this Roman centurion, it even says in the scripture that they came to him. He didn't send his people, his servants. He sent some Jewish representatives to to Jesus. And they came to him and said, the centurion, who's been very kind to us, as a matter of fact, he built the synagogue. His servant is sick, and he wants you to heal him. And we think he's worthy of you healing him. It's an amazing story. And Jesus goes through this, and he's going to go to his house. And before he gets all the way to the house, some of his servants do come and say, no, my master sent these people because he feels unworthy. And he understands authority. As a military leader, he understands authority. I give an order, it's done. And he says to Jesus, I believe you have the authority. You don't need to come to my house to heal my servant. And Jesus was in awe and impressed. He says, I've never seen such faith, even in Israel. And the servant was healed. So all this has been taking place around Capernaum. And that brings us up to where we're going to see Jesus leaving Capernaum in verse 11 of Luke chapter 7. It says this, soon afterwards, or some translations say the next day, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers of the coffin came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding districts going to go through some of these verses and notice a few things. One, verse 11, it says he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him accompanied by a large crowd. Nain, it's a map up there. You've got a map. Go ahead in the next one. You see where Capernaum is up on the Sea of Galilee. Nain is here, close to Nazareth, where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were from. It's approximately a 20-mile walk. And it's through pretty rugged terrain. It would be pretty much a full day's walk. And it's not just Jesus. Then he's got his disciples. And then it says there's this large crowd also walking with them through this 20-mile stretch of rough, hazardous, mountainous desert terrain. They were so enamored with and in awe of Jesus, what he had been doing and his teaching. So there's this procession. And it's being led by Jesus. 
the giver of life. This is the guy that's been healing and casting out demons and doing all these miracles, and the people are following Jesus in this long procession to Nahum. And verse 12 then says, Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And there was a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Try to picture the scene in your mind. You've got these two processions, and they're going to come into contact and run into each other at the gate of a city. The cities at that time, many of them had walls around the city, and then they would have a limited number of gates that you would enter in. And they're coming to the main gate. And in the Jewish culture, the bodies would, of course, be taken out of the city. In the Jewish culture, you didn't touch anything dead. You became ceremonially unclean. There was all these things going on. And we've got these two processions. This procession being led by the bearers, carrying the body, a procession of death. And then we see Jesus, his disciples, and all these other followers that are coming with him, this procession of life, and they're gone a collision course. This Jewish funeral, it would, it would be normal to honor the dead. The people would be, there would be a big crowd. Sometimes if there wasn't enough mourners, they'd even hire mourners. And there would be crying and wailing as they were marching through. The people would honoring the dead person. Kind of like we do, only quite a bit different. You know, remember, it's not so much these days, but it always used to be if, if you were driving your car and you met a hearse in a funeral procession, what did you do? You pulled over and stopped. And everybody would pull over and stop. And you would wait, in a sense, honoring this person whether you knew him or not. This procession as it went by, giving honor to the person. In the Jewish culture, the people gathered. It was almost a community event, especially in the smaller towns and villages. And this is the crowd, and they're all weeping and mourning the death of this young man. And he's being carried along on a stretcher by men, the bearers, or we would call them pallbearers. He's being carried along. And there's this large crowd. And we see a couple things. One, and they're key, especially in their culture. It tells us that this is the only son. This is the only begotten son of this woman. Her son, her only son, died. He was dead. And then it said, and that she was a widow. And there's so much significance in that little phrase. The only son of a widow had died. In the Jewish culture, if the, father, the husband died, it was the son's responsibility to take care of mother. He was the one carrying on the family name. This woman had buried her husband, and now she's in the process of burying her son. Who's going to take care of her? What is she going to do? She has no one. No one's left. And verse 13 says, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Now, if you just look at his words, do not weep, you might go, well, what the heck? Her son is dead. They're going out to bury him. Why wouldn't she be weeping? I believe we almost have to use our imagination and imagine Jesus speaking to this woman, seeing her face to face, eye to eye, and and speaking with the compassion and love that she might even have seen in this man's eyes. 
do not weep. We can hear those words anticipating what he's going to do. But let me tell you, that woman had no idea what he was going to do. She just knew she was hurting. And God, Jesus the Son, was filled with compassion. You know, sometimes we forget some of the attributes of God. You know, if you truly are the children of God, sons and daughters of God, he looks at you and me and he knows our situation and he cares. He is filled with compassion when he looks upon us as his children. Those of us in here who have children or grandchildren, we know how we would look on our children if they're in a terrible state of grieving or agony or something is troubling them to such a great degree. We would look at them and we'd be filled with compassion and we'd want to do whatever we could do to make the pain go away. Jesus knows, God knows what you're going through today. He knows the issues that you're facing today. And he's just looking at us the same way he looks at this woman. And this woman had no idea, and this woman hadn't even reached out. And we as believers today have the privilege and the right, legal right, to go to the Father and ask, plead our case before him. This woman didn't even ask. And in his compassion, he was moved. Do not weep. You know, in Lamentations, a chapter I don't read a whole lot, in verses 22 of of chapter 3, it says, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, and his compassions never fail. They're new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Sometimes we have to wait, and we definitely need to seek. I think we could do a whole teaching and study on those two words, but waiting on the Lord. I am so impatient so much of the time, And so often when I'm praying, I'm not only asking for what I want, I'm telling God how to deliver and when. And when I do that, I get so disappointed sometimes. Have you ever said to yourself, God just never answers my prayers? I have, too often. And then I have to check myself and realize It's not that God's not answering my prayers. I already predetermined in my mind what he's supposed to say and do when I pray. As if he's on my calendar. As if I know better than he knows. You know, this this lady is going to get an unbelievable miracle. But many of us have played for that same unbelievable miracle for people we've loved. And he didn't respond the same way he responds here to a lady who didn't even ask. And our normal question would always be, why? As if we're supposed to understand the mind of God. It says, wait on him, seek him, and trust him. I can trust him that he has an answer that is going to be good 
for me because he's a good God and he promises good things to his children who believe. Verse 14. Now it gets crazy. Again, just try to imagine the scene if you can. These two groups of people are coming together. Jesus is leading this this procession of life and this dead body and the procession of death and they come together and Jesus has made contact with the mother and says, hey, please, don't weep, don't weep. And then it says, he came up and touched the coffin. He did the unthinkable. And the bearers came to a halt. I bet they did. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Imagine, just imagine, you're one of the pallbearers and you're Jewish and you know the culture. And here comes this man. And he says to the woman, stop crying. And if they didn't understand his heart, they probably thought, what's with you? Show some grace and mercy and compassion. And then he reaches out and touches the stretcher or the coffin. Ceremonially unclean. One thing about Jesus we learned is he never allowed religious doctrine or culture to stop him from ministering where there was a need. He was not afraid to get down and touch the leper. He was not afraid to touch and heal the eyes of the blind beggars. He was not afraid to touch and minister to the prostitutes. He was not afraid to go to the cross and voluntarily die and taste death. He wasn't afraid of any of these things. He would go wherever he had to go to do what needed to be done to minister. No matter where you're at, no matter how you've disqualified yourself in your own mind, no matter what you've done, Jesus will come and meet you right where you're at. He will come and minister life everywhere, any place, any time. He touches the coffin. The bearers stop. When I read a scripture like this and I spend time thinking about it, I like to ask questions like, what would I have thought if I was one of the bearers of that thing? I mean, he touched the coffin. Nobody does this. He's, he's, He's bringing a halt to this whole procession where we're honoring this dead person grieving with the mother, wailing at the top of our lungs. What's he doing? Well, he's just going to talk to a corpse. That's what he's going to do. This guy's crazy. He speaks to a corpse, and all we see him saying here is, young man, I say to you, arise. Verse 15 tells us the dead man sat up and he began to speak. Wonder what he said. What day is it? What time is it? What am I doing here? I have no idea what he said, but my imagination runs wild. But whatever it was, I bet there was, thank you, whoever you are, and whatever you've just done. I got to believe this touch from God, just a simple touch and a simple word from God, changed his life forever. Not just the fact that he's now breathing again, but it changed his life forever. That's all it takes. When we are in that place and we see no way out, we see no hope, 
we're so in despair and we're ready to give up. All it takes is one touch, one word. And for us responding to that touch, responding to that word. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of touch? How many of you have been touched like that? Come on, this is a serious question. It's a setup question, but it's a serious question. Boy, I'd, I'd like to be touched like that. I've got to tell you, if you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you've been touched like that. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You were dead and you were condemned and going to hell. And somehow, he reached down from heaven and touched your heart and softened your heart and opened your heart up to receive the truth of the gospel. And you received life. You are now a new creation in Christ. That old man is dead. Bury him. Quit doing CP. What's it called? CPR. Thank you. I thought I was going to give you an accountant's name or something. CPR. Don't do it. We keep trying to revive that old man and give him life, give him rights, give him some sort of authority. He's dead. We have been touched by God, all of us, and we have been given a new life in Christ. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, there it is, his love, his compassion. Because of that, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. By his love and compassion you've been saved. Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. Isn't that enough? How much more do we need? Well, the good news is that should be enough. The really good news is he gives us more. He continues to bless us. He continues to bless us and pour out his love on us. If, but if it's enough, if when we're in those situations, we're reminded we remind ourselves. We give the Holy Spirit permission and we respond to be reminded that he loves us no matter where we're at, no matter what we're going through, he's got this. God's got it. And then Jesus gives his woman's son back to her. What is it that the Lord wants to give back to you and me? What is it that's died, so to speak, in our lives that he wants to restore? Maybe it's your joy. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's marriage. Who knows what it is, but he wants to restore these things. But sometimes we need to wait and seek him. Just him. Not the stuff we think we need, just him. And verse 16 and 17 kind of wraps it up. And it simply says, fear gripped them all. Now the word that's used there, fear there, has two distinct meanings in the scriptures. One is that fear, fear and shock and, and that we might have when we're scared. And the other is a fear that's an awe and a reverence. And sometimes it's just hard to tell what it means. I believe, personally, 
then it means here a sh an awe and reverence because of what it says next. They were filled with fear, and they began glorifying God. And then they said, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. And then the report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. If you remember that map, Nyan was in southern Galilee. Judea is further south, and Judea goes well below, but it includes Jerusalem, Bethlehem. The word spread throughout basically all of what we would call the nation of Israel. A great prophet has risen among us. Depending on what commentator you might read, some would say they just didn't know who Jesus was yet, but they recognized him as a man of God, as a prophet. Others would say, because of what they said next, surely God has visited us. They think they understood that it was Jesus. I don't know, and it doesn't matter to me. All I know is God visited them, and they recognized that it was God, and it gave them such a sense of awe. You know, as Christians, as Christians, we should never lose our sense of awe at we, the fact that we are now children of God. We should always be in awe that he rescued you and me from condemnation and a pit of hell because he loved us so much. We shouldn't ever lose that sense of awe and the realization that God visited us. He visited me. He visited you. And he continues. He says he's never going to leave us or forsake us, right? The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us to move in our lives, to guide our lives. Look at the length that Jesus went to as he was moved by compassion. He stopped a funeral procession. He touched the casket of a dead body, putting him ceremonially unclean. He broke all the norms of the culture. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will meet us wherever he needs to. He will meet us in ways that the culture may not like. He may meet us in ways that we don't even understand and we walk away going, how did he do that? But the reality is, he will go to whatever length. He sees what you're going through. He sees the strain in our families. He sees the strain in our marriages. He knows what's happening. He sees the grief that we endure at the loss of a loved one. He sees the worry and concern that we have when a loved one is sick, diseased, and it doesn't look good. He sees our hopelessness and despair over circumstances in our lives. He sees those prayers that we think have been unanswered, where the answer may have been just wait. He sees the fatigue and the tiredness, and he can refresh us. He sees us when we got that dryness in our spiritual walk. And he's just ready and anxious and willing and desiring to refresh us. He knows we need a touch from him. We're created for that touch. 
One of the keys, I think, in receiving this touch from the Lord, and I understand God can do it whenever he wants like he did for this lady. But in Psalms 34, starting at verse 1, David wrote these words. I will extol the Lord at all times. Extol him. I will lift him up. I'm going to brag about him. His praise will always be on my lips, even in the midst of the trials and storms. My soul will boast in the Lord. So we're extolling, we're praising, boasting in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He took action. He made it an intentional act. I'm seeking the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look, notice what he delivered him from, by the way? All my fears. Doesn't mean he took him out of every situation. It doesn't mean he rearranged things just the way David wanted. It said he took him all his fears away as he rejoiced, as he praised God and glorified him. And then he says, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Again, blessed is the man who does something. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Blessed is the man who puts his trust and confidence in him no matter what. That's what it means to take refuge in him. I'm going to trust him. My confidence is him. in him. No matter what happens, I'm not going to sway. I'm not going right or left. I'm on him. I'm focused on him. And he says that's where we find our refuge, in him. In Psalms 9, verses 9 and 10, it says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And then Lamentations 3.25 that I read earlier, The Lord is good to those who wait for him and seek him. I believe there's some practical things that we can do that will not force God's hand to touch us, but I think it will put us in a place for us to receive his touch. And the first is to praise him in every circumstance. Praise him. Glorify him. Give him honor. Extol him. Seek the Lord intentionally. It's easy to get distracted and be doing godly things without seeking him. I can find myself studying, reading, getting excited and, and, and just immersed in, immersed in the story. But I'm not seeking him. Not that that's not okay at times. But seek him intentionally. And wait upon him. Patiently, confidently, and in humility. Wait on him. If my trust is in him, he's my refuge, waiting 
is a time that God is doing something in my life. Wait on him. Fear him. In other words, have awe and reverence. He is our father. He loves us. If you want to picture yourself crawling up on God's lap and calling him, Papa, go for it. It's okay. He loves that. But he's still God. Always God. And then take refuge in him. So if we find ourselves where we are most of the time, needing a fresh touch, seek him. Wait for him. Praise and rejoice your way through the circumstance and storm. Get to know him. Wait on him. And he will touch our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are alive and living God that's active in our lives. God, that you care for us. You know everything there is about us and you still love us. You care for us every day, every moment of every day. Your eyes are upon us. You're always searching the world, Father. I thank you for your compassion that moves you. Father, I pray that you would help us to better understand what it means to put our trust, our hope, our faith, our confidence in you. That the things of the world couldn't get us off track. That we would recognize the attacks of the enemy as soon as he launches that attack. God, that we would always be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's voice. Looking and expecting to be touched by you. I pray now, Lord, that you would give us safe travel on these roads. Pray for anybody who is traveling. Watch over them. We continue to pray for Chad and Sarah and the children as they go through this process. Lord, we thank you for your love and your kindness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.